They turned me into a video game. That's the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Don't tell my wife and kids I said that. Well, happy 2018, happy New Year, Christ community. It is good to be together. I wanna to say hello to all of you in DeKalb, in Blackberry Creek, Streamwood Bartlett, and St. Charles. It's always good to be together as a church family. Let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we want to be open to you right now. Uh, we want this to be a year where we are synced up with you, where we are in tune with what you're doing. That we don't know what you have in store for us, but we want to be open to whatever you want to do in us and whatever you want to do through us. So that's the reason we're coming to your word right now. We want to start this year off right. We want to be doing the things you call us to do. And so we pray that your spirit would be moving as we open up your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We are one week into the new year. So I want a show of hands here. How many of you have already given up on your resolutions? Okay, I, I've worked out two of the five times I said it would this week, so I think I'm in that camp already. Um, here's, here's the even bigger question. How many of you didn't even bother to make resolutions this year? All right, yeah, you're not gonna keep them. Give me a break, guys. Um, for a long time, that's sort of how I felt about New Year's resolutions. Uh, part of the problem is that I just kept making the same ones every single year, you know? Gotta exercise more, gotta eat better, gotta waste less time online. And then I'd get to the end of the next year and I'd make the same resolution because it obviously didn't change anything. Uh, so why even do it in the first place? But lately, I've been thinking about resolutions a little bit differently. Uh, I've been thinking about them more like rebooting your computer. Uh, if any of you work in IT or some form of tech support, uh, if you're anything like our IT guy around here, the very first thing you ask when someone says, hey, my computer is broken is, did you try restarting it? Because that fixes like you know 50% of the problems. And the reason for that is because the longer your computer runs, uh, the more it accumulates you know, sort of little problems that build up. You got some programs that start taking up too much memory, more than they should. Uh, you got some programs that didn't get shut down properly, and so they're still running in the background, taking up space. Uh, you've got updates that need to be installed. And, and that's why sometimes you just need a fresh start. You've got to shut everything down and reset things the way they need to be. Our lives are a little bit like this. Some aspects of our lives have begun to, begun to take up more of our attention and energy than they really should. Uh, there are some things, some bad habits we've thought we shut down, but they're still kind of running in the background. And all of us, we've got glitches and bugs in our programming, and we really need to do an update to our routines, our habits. Now, we know that when we restart our computers, those same problems are going to creep in again. That sort of just naturally happens, and you're going to have to do another reboot eventually. And the same thing is true with us. From time to time, whether it's at the new year or other times in your uh, routine, your, your uh, yearly calendar, it's good to reset and recommit to the way we know we ought to live. And so that's the question we have for this new year, especially when it comes to your relationship with God and God's people. Where do you need a reboot? If you've got a Bible, turn with me to the New Testament book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, towards the end of the chapter. 
And the book of Acts is the very first history of the New Testament church that was ever written. It's the uh, very first story of what happened after Jesus died, rose, and returned to heaven. It was written by a guy named Luke who was a medical doctor who's actually the eyewitness to a lot of these events, and the events that he wasn't actually there to see, he was friends with the eyewitnesses. So this is a, a, a lot of uh, well-attested events in this book. And it's an amazing story, as you see this first generation uh, of the Jesus movement spread from a, a small community of a few hundred people, a few hundred people of uh, a Jewish background in Jerusalem, to this movement that spread across the entire known world with hundreds of thousands and eventually uh, millions of people following Jesus from every different background uh, you can imagine. It's an amazing story of what happens in this generation. And the story we're going to look at right now is an account of the very first church community way at the beginning in Jerusalem and a description of what their life was like. So let's start reading in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved." Here's what we believe around here, that these are not just the human words of Dr. Luke. These are also the words of God. And so we'd like to thank God for speaking to us. Let's do that now with enthusiasm. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's what this passage is describing. It is describing humanity 2.0. Humanity 2.0. Uh, to understand why I say that, you've got to actually kind of go back and hear the story leading up to this moment. It helps to realize that the book of Acts is actually a sequel. It's the second part of a, a two-part story. The first part is the Gospel of Luke. It's the, the story, the biography of Jesus that Luke wrote, and it tells the story of his ministry. And as you read this story, you quickly realize that Jesus was an incredible man. His life was amazing. He did things that no one else ever did. Uh, his life was a supernatural life. Everywhere he went, he was healing people and performing signs and wonders. His life was a generous life. He, he was always giving of himself, of his time and his attention, his energy, his resources to the people around him in need. Uh, he taught his followers to do the same thing. He, he said to his disciples, he said, don't worry about the stuff that you need. Don't worry about the stuff that you have. Let God worry about those things. Here's what you should worry about. You should worry about supporting each other and looking out for people in need around you. Let God take care of the rest. Jesus' life was a connected life. The community that he gathered around himself was amazing. This tight-knit group of disciples. They, they traveled together. They spent time together. They shared, meal, shared meals with each other. And they would have these incredible conversations about God and about the scriptures and the things that really matter. And because of this, Jesus' life was an attractive life. People were always flocking to see Jesus. They, they wanted to get close to him to see what God was up to because they could tell that, that something new was happening here. It, it was like uh, God had showed up to actually rescue his people, to set things right. So they wanted to get close to that. It, it was almost like Jesus was bringing a fresh start to humanity. It, it was not just like Jesus was a little bit better than us. It was like he was a new type of human being. Or maybe the better way to say it is that he was the first true 
human being. The, the first person to actually live the human life the way it was meant to be lived. Jesus was humanity 2.0. That's part of the reason people couldn't figure him out. Uh, my roommate in college, one of my roommates in college, was a computer science major. And so uh, his computer was out. He was always working on it and stuff. And one day I uh, needed to print something or look something up, and my laptop was stored away in the other room. So I thought, I'm just going to jump on Aaron's computer and, and use that. It'll be no big deal. So I turned on his computer, and I recognize nothing that's going on, okay? I'm looking at it, and he wasn't running Windows, which was what was on my computer. And he, it wasn't a Mac. I would have known what to do with that. He was actually running Linux. Now, some of you know what Linux is. Others of you are like, what are you even talking about? Um, but here's the thing. Aaron had not just rearranged things on his desktop. Uh, he had not just installed different programs on his computer. He was running a completely different operating system. It, it worked differently than the other computers I had seen. And so there were some things about it that I was like, okay, I think I know what that is going on over there. But other things were completely bewildering to me, and I didn't know how to use it. In fact, I, I tried to type on the keyboard, and the wrong letters were showing up on the screen. Um, I, I, seriously, I did not know this was a thing. But there are different keyboard arrangements, not just the normal kind of QWERTY keyboard you have. This was called Dvorak or something like that. And I asked him about it. He's like, oh, it's more efficient for typing. Um, and I think he just didn't want people using his computer. So... <laughs> I, I didn't after that. But this is how people experience Jesus. They would approach him thinking they understood what was about to happen. You know, they, they, they know what operating system. You know, Jesus is a PC, or he's a little bit too cool for that. So Jesus is a Mac, right? Like, you, you, you approach him, like, super awesome, and, and you try things, but he's not. He, he's doing something completely different that you have not seen before, a completely different operating system. What operating system was that? It was the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit. As you read the book of Luke, it comes up a lot. And it comes up in kind of little phrases here and there, little asides that you might overlook. It says things like Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He does something and it says he was full of the Holy Spirit. It says the Spirit was upon him. It says he did this or that in the power of the Spirit. That a lot of the amazing things that we look at in Jesus' life and we say, oh yeah, he could do that because he was God, right? Like of course he could do that. The truth is, the reason he could do those things wasn't because he was God, but because he was a human being running on a new operating system, the operating system humanity was meant to run on, the power and presence of God in his life. This is why Jesus is humanity 2.0, because he lived in the power of the Spirit. Now, here's the cool thing. Jesus was the first of the new true humanity, but he was not the last. Uh, Stuart Briscoe talked a little bit about this last week, our guest speaker. Uh, he talked about how... Uh, God has predestined, or as he put, predestined some of us to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. God loves Jesus so much. He delights in who Jesus is so much that he wants more and more people who reflect what he's like, who are just like him, filling his world. He wants more of humanity 2.0. And this is where we get back to Acts chapter 2. At this point, Jesus has died and he has risen and he has returned to heaven. He's taken his place on the throne of the universe. And as his first act as the risen king, he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit on my people. And so that's what he does. What he does is he sends the very power that ran his life so that it could run our lives. He sends the person of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's downloaded his operating system into us. So now in Acts 2, what we have is a picture of what a community might look like if everybody was running Humanity 2.0. 
And it looks like four things. It's going to sound very familiar when you see them. Look at verse 43. It says, everyone was filled with awe at the many signs and wonders performed by the apostles. Humanity 2.0 is a supernatural way of life. Miracles are happening in this community, just like in Jesus' ministry. If you get a community of people together who are, are all filled with the Holy Spirit, supernatural things are going to take place. They're going to happen. Here's the second thing. Look at verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Humanity 2.0 is also a generous way of life. To me, this is even more amazing than the miracles. I'd actually include it among the miracles, the the generous, open-handed way of life that they lived. Uh, Most of the time, when people read this passage, they get a little bit distracted uh, because they read what the early church did and they say, okay, were they some sort of communists or something? And they start getting off into debates about welfare and private property and capitalism and all sorts of other things. But they miss the point here. The point of this passage is not the economics of the world's nations. It's the economics of the kingdom of God, the economics of a church community, the economics of your heart. Because here's the thing, the the point here is that this is how people ought to live. In, In some ways, talking about your heart is harder than talking about politics and economies and debating all that sort of thing. Because God's people are supposed to be generous people. Not out of some guilt trip obligation, but out of the joy of having the presence and blessing of God in their life. Personally, I find this to be the most appealing and the most threatening part about this passage. Because I look at it and I say, I would love to be one of those people. But wouldn't you, to be so free with what they have, to care for people around me like that? And there's so much of me that has such a tight grip on my money and my stuff and my lifestyle. I'm full of fear. Frankly, I'm pretty selfish. I'm apathetic about the needs of other people. But that's actually the reason this is so appealing. Because my fear and my apathy and my selfishness, those are the things that cause the most unhappiness in my life. And I would love to be free from those things. I don't want to be a a tight-fisted person who's always gripping onto things. I want to be free from those things, don't you? I I mean, at the end of your life, which would you rather look back and say, this is the kind of person I was? The sort of person who, who, when they saw someone in need, when they saw a cause to be a part of, they were willing to sell something or give something away in order to support that. Or to be the sort of person who said, yeah, I had everything I wanted, everything I need, but I never got involved in the lives of other people. Think about it this way. What kind of community would you want to be a part of? Like, who would you rather have as your friend or a part of your family, the the stingy person or the generous person? And and ask yourself this. Who's happier? The the person who's living like this or the person who has an open hand with what they have? Humanity 2.0 is a generous, generous way of life. Here's the third thing. Look at verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Humanity 2.0 is a connected way of life. Humans were not designed to go it alone. We were made in the image of the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in a community of three persons. And at the very beginning, God said, it is not good for a person to be alone. We, we, we don't thrive in isolation. We were made for connection. In this community here, they're spending a lot of time together. They're very close. Uh, their lives are overlapping. 
And what's amazing about it is their relationship with God is woven into all of their community life. It's not a private thing just between an individual and God all by themselves. It's, it's something they do together. Their social lives are their spiritual lives. And I love the phrase that describes the, the attitude they had. They had glad and sincere hearts. Isn't that what you want in life? I feel like that could sum up some of my goals. I want a glad and sincere heart. Look at the result of this at the end of verse 47. It says, the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Humanity 2.0 is an attractive way of life. Just like with Jesus, who is so different from other people, the early church was so countercultural that it intrigued people. They wondered what was going on. And it makes sense. If they had this supernatural, generous, connected way of living, you can understand why people would say, I want to know what's going on there. It's sort of like being around them would have been a taste of the way things were meant to be or the way things one day will be. It was like getting a glimpse of both Eden and heaven at the same time when you were around them. Any community running Humanity 2.0 is going to be both incredibly strange and incredibly appealing to the surrounding culture, don't you think? Now, as I say all this, I do want to make one clarification and ask one question, because I'm sure you're thinking about some of these things. Uh, the clarification here is some of you are probably thinking, Luke's leaving stuff out, isn't he? Like, like, this cannot be what it was like. Like, it just sounds way too good to be true. He's sweeping all the messy stuff under the rug. And in one sense, he is, at least for this one paragraph. This is like a highlight reel of the very best things about this community. If you read the rest of the book of Acts, and especially if you read the rest of the New Testament, you, you see a very honest depiction of how challenging this community also was. Uh, there are all sorts of things that, that, even though all these amazing things were happening, there were some hard parts about it. Uh, there were people who needed miracles and didn't get a miracle. Uh, there, there were situations where uh, people were giving their stuff away, but they were doing it to show off how amazing they were. Or they would give generously, but they would say, no, you can only use that for people who are culturally like me. It was only for my group that I'm giving. When people got close in this close community, there were conflicts that arose. The community attracted people, but people started to get really uncomfortable when they attracted the wrong types of people. And the outside world, they looked at this community, and some people were attracted to it, but other people were really threatened by it, and they said, we're going to try to stamp this out. And they would chase them out of town. They would threaten them with violence. They would persecute them. So this is not some sort of hippie utopia and everything's just working great. You know, it's really ideal. This was hard work. This was difficult. And yet, something really new, something really different was happening here. So much so that when a group of Christ followers would show up in a town, the people around them who weren't even believers would say things like, they're turning the entire world upside down. They're, they're changing everything. Now, here's the question I have. Uh, the one that I, I'm sure many of you are thinking the question is this, why in the world doesn't our community and our lives look more like this? Uh, I, you know, where's the supernatural stuff? We've got the Holy Spirit. We've surrendered to, to Jesus. Why doesn't my life feel, you know, kind of like Acts 2? And that's a really good question. The first thing I'd say to it is this. You might be surprised. You might be surprised how much of this stuff is actually going on around Christ Community Church. Uh, so many people around here have found amazing, tight-knit community. There are some astoundingly generous and sacrificial people in our community. There are even miracles happening here. And often the reason you don't hear about it is because it's just the people around the person who had the miracle who get to hear the story. Not all of us get to hear all the things that are going on. So this is happening more often than you realize, both in our church and in churches around our community and around the world. God is at work among his people. But even so, 
I think most of us would still say, my life and our church could stand to look more like this, have a little bit more humanity 2.0 going on. So why doesn't it? And I think that one of the reasons is because we're not doing what they were doing in verse 42. Let me, let me read it to you. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. If we keep using this metaphor of the Holy Spirit as a new operating system, here's what this verse is describing. It is describing the user interface for the operating system. So a user interface is what you use to actually access the power and the functions of a computer program, okay? So for your computer, it's your mouse and your keyboard and the windows and the icons and the things you actually interact with to get the computer to do the things you need it to do. Uh, for uh, your mobile device, it's the touch screen, it's the voice commands that you give it. For a TV, it's your remote control. It's what you do to actually get access to what it was made to do, okay? So uh, if you use the wrong user interface or you refuse to use the one that's given to you, you don't actually get access to the power. So how many of you have seen Star Trek IV, okay? The one where they go back in time and save the whales, everybody? All right, yes, okay, there's some geeks in the crowd, great, I salute you, okay? Okay, so here's what's happening <laughs> in this story. Uh, the crew of the Enterprise, they go back in time to the 1980s, and Scotty needs to use a computer to do something. So some, somebody from the 80s says, why don't you use my computer? And he walks up to the computer and goes, hello, computer, and nothing happens. Hello, computer, and nothing happens. So Bones hands him the mouse and says, why don't you use this? And he goes, Hello, computer, <laughs> and nothing happens. He wasn't using the user interface correctly. And that, the same is true for us. The Holy Spirit unleashes all sorts of power in our lives and our community, but if we aren't accessing it in the way he's given for us to access it, we won't experience that. And that's what's described. Four activities here in verse 42 that are our user interface. Here's the first one. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. First component of the user interface is scripture, is scripture. Now, it doesn't use the word scripture here. It says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Uh, you know who the apostles were? Uh, in this case, the, the word's used a few different ways in the New Testament, but in this situation, it's talking about the people who were with Jesus during his life. They, they witnessed his teaching, his death, his resurrection. Uh, they saw him ascend to heaven, and they were assigned to spread the news and tell people what it was like to be with Jesus. It wouldn't have been incredible to be around them. I mean, have you ever known someone who knew someone famous? I mean, did, have you ever met someone famous? I mean, have you ever known someone who was friends with a famous person? Uh, my wife's grandmother grew up in New York in the, the 30s, and she actually lived in the same building as Babe Ruth. So she would sometimes tell stories like, you know, I saw him around when I was walking my dog, or we would see each other in the neighborhood. And these the moments that, it wasn't just the big things that everybody in the world got to see. It was the, the moments that you only got when you were personally connected with that person. It, wouldn't it be amazing to be around someone who was with Jesus and say, oh yeah, this one time we did this, this one time he said that. Like, think about sitting down with Matthew and say, Matthew, tell me, what was it like being in that boat when he calmed the storm? What were you feeling? Or to be like, okay, when he, when he fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves and some fish, what was that like? Or to say, Peter, Peter, you were there. He took you up on a mountain and he showed you his glory. What, what was that like, man? Or to sit with John, Jesus' very best friend, and say, the last night of his life, in the last supper, you were there. That had been a, a, just a powerful moment. It, what was it like to lean on his side and to hear him talk? What did he say? 
What was he feeling at that time? Or, or what was it like in three days when you, when you were there at the tomb? You're one of the first people at the empty tomb. What, what was it like, John? It'd be amazing to hear their stories, wouldn't it? Or, or to ask them a question, to get wisdom from them. Say, okay, how do you do it? Like, like, how do you love people that you can't stand? How do you love people that mistreat you? Give, give me some wisdom here. How, how do you be a, a person who uses power or money in a way that doesn't corrupt your soul? How can you be a person who is a person of gentleness and a, a, a culture of outrage? How, how can you stand for what's right, even when it costs you? Give me some wisdom here. How, how do you find hope in hard times? To, to hear them teach about that would just have been amazing. Too bad we can't do that anymore. Or can we? Maybe we can hear directly from the apostles about what those things were like. You know what this is? This is a collection of the apostles' writings. That's what the New Testament is. These are not things that you hear directly from their mouth, but they are things you get directly from their pens. That's what the New Testament is. It is the accounts of all those things I just described. Those are all in here. We hear it directly from them, what it was like, what Jesus taught, and how they lived. And being devoted to this book is being devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, now why is it that when we are devoted to this book, we see the, the, the Holy Spirit's power unleashed in our lives? Why does it access the Holy Spirit's power? It's because this book is more than just the words of the apostles. It's also the words of God. Uh, Paul, he describes this book as breathed out by God's Spirit. When Peter describes it, he describes uh, the, the process of writing it uh, that the Holy Spirit carried the authors along as they wrote. God wasn't dictating the exact words that they needed to write, but the Holy Spirit was moving in such a way that he guaranteed that the words he wanted written were the ones that we got. That Hebrews says the word of God is living and active. It's actually doing something. It's not a dead word. It's, it's moving. It says it's like a sword that just cuts deep right to the heart of things. It goes right to the, the soul of things and pierces you. That James, the brother of Jesus, says the, the word is like a seed that gets planted in you. A seed gets planted, it, it, it stirs up the soil and it starts to bear root, uh, fruit and it, it changes things in your life. This is the Spirit's book. He's at work in it. And if you want to access the power of the Spirit, you've got to be devoted to Scripture. Now, maybe this new year you have been thinking that same thing. You think, yeah, I would love to do that. I've got to be getting into the Bible or maybe get back into the Bible. It's been a long time for me. We want to help you if, if that's the case. Here at Christ Community Church, pretty much everything we do when it comes down to it is about getting people into God's word. It's the reason half of every weekend service is devoted to teaching about the Bible. It's the reason why the primary activity in our community groups is discussing the Bible together. It's the reason we put together a four-year reading plan that works through the Bible uh, as an entire community called the Bible Savvy Plan. Uh, thousands of you are, are doing this every single day. No matter who you are, this is our desire for you. We want to come alongside you and help you have this year be a year devoted to God's word. Uh, the new Bible Savvy journals are actually out, so this is a perfect time to jump in if you're thinking you'd want to do that. Tomorrow is the first day of a new book of the Bible. We are starting 1 Samuel. Uh, it's a great book. It's a lot of fun. It's got the stories of Hannah and Saul and Samuel and King David and uh, the whole David and Goliath thing. Like, just a lot of good stuff in there. Uh, so it would be a great place to jump in if you want to. Uh, and uh, if you've got kids, this is a great time to pick up an epic journal and do it with them. Uh, I used the epic journal with my first grader at breakfast. And it, it's one of the best ways I've ever found to start talking about God's word with my family. It's, it's really incredible. So no matter, no matter who you are, where you're at on your faith journey, we would urge you, make this year the year you're devoted to Scripture. 
Here's the second aspect of the user interface that we see in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to fellowship. That's kind of a funny word. Uh, Today, we would tend to use the word community to describe this, Uh, but even that word is a little bit watered down from the original. Uh, The word here means something uh, not just about hanging out with people or having some good friends. It includes that, but it's more than that. It means something more like partnership, partnership in a project. Like you're working side by side with something on, someone on the same thing. The biblical idea of community is partnering with other people to live the life Jesus has called us to live. The way this starts is simply by sharing time and space with another person. You've got to have your lives overlap in some ways. This church that we read about was together all the time, weren't they? They got together for worship. They got together in each other's homes. They shared meals together. So here's a question I have for you. When was the last time you had someone in your home for a meal? Now, if I take out Christmas and Thanksgiving, like I don't include the holidays, for most of us, it would probably be a long time. Uh, My wife and I, we uh, recently uh, moved into a new home and we have a dining room now. And so we bought a dining room table. And because we read the Bible and we want to do the things that it says, we bought a 14-person dining room table. Because, you know, we want to have people in our home. But that means we're going to have to buy some chairs. So we have been chair shopping. And as we look online, there are some interesting things we have found in the reviews of dining room table chairs. There are people uh, who say, hey, this was a great chair. We'd highly recommend it. We've used it a lot. Four times this year, we had people over to to eat at our dining room, and it was a great chair. And we're reading that, and we're thinking, first of all, why do you even say that? Like, why do you need the stats in there for your review? But the fact that people would say, this proves to you that we use our dining room a lot four or five times this year we had people over. That's astounding. Now, you might laugh at that, but think about your own life. How many times this year or last year did you have people over into your home to share a meal with you? This church did it every single day. I'm not saying we got to get to that level, but it does challenge us to say maybe we should do this more. And here's the thing about this. You don't actually have to have a dining room. You don't have to have a lot of space to do this. You know what a first century home was like? Unless you were in maybe the top 5% of people, this is what your home would have been like. It would have been four or five rooms that all together took up about 850 square feet. And the one common room you would have had would have been a room that you use both for your kitchen and for your dining room, for your living room, and for the workshop for your family business. It it was one room that you did all of those things in. So whatever it was for, it was not for entertaining people. It was about bringing people in and actually letting them share your real life space. This was not about being fancy. It was about being family. Eventually, as you do this, you spend time with other people, you start to get invested in their lives. And I say that word almost literally when I say invested. It means having your resources invested in someone else's well-being, your time, your energy, your skills, your attention, your emotions, and even your finances invested in someone else's life, in the life of the community. The people in this church, they were giving things away. They were selling things. They were sharing what they had with anybody who had need. They had gotten close with other people enough, and their hearts were open enough to them that they were generous with what they had. They were literally invested in each other. And when you are invested in something, if it does well, you do well, right? And if it's doing poorly, you're doing poorly. The same thing is true with community. Community is where you share your burdens and your joys with other people, and they share theirs with you. So you weep when they weep, and you rejoice when they rejoice. You you go up and down with them in their life. 
question is, who do you have in your life? What community do you have? Uh, outside of maybe your immediate family that you're invested in in that way. Now, you might hear this, and it probably sounds a, a bit over the top, and you're thinking, okay, look, I, like, that's, that sounds really appealing, that's cool, but I, like, I just have a few decent friends. Like, I'm just hoping for a couple of solid Christian friends. I don't have anybody that could even get close like this uh, in my life. Uh, where do I even start for looking for that kind of community? Now, it doesn't happen all at once. There's no quick fix for this, but here's a great place to take a first step. Get into a community group. Uh, the reason we do community groups here uh, at Christ Community is because we know you can't have this kind of partnership and closeness with 5,000 people in a church who are spread over four campuses. You just can't do it. You've got to get into a smaller group where you can actually get to know people. You've got to have your lives overlap with some people. So a, a community group around here, what, what we do in those is we study scripture, we pray together, we wrestle with real life things, we encourage each other, we walk with each other as we grow with Jesus. And if you're not a part of a community group or you're in between community groups, this is actually the perfect time to, to look into one. Uh, we've been talking about this. It's Group Connect this week. And just as our service is done, you can walk outside of uh, any of the auditoriums at our campuses and go and walk up to a table and say, tell me about a group. And as you do that, let me, let me tell you two things, okay? This probably will help you uh, be willing to do that. First is this. If you go and get information about a group, you are not obligated to go to that particular group. It's not like you've signed up and you're locked in and that's where you gotta go, okay? So you can just go find out some information and it's no pressure, okay? Second thing is this. When you do actually go visit a group, if you don't hit it off, if it doesn't work for some reason, if the people are totally weird and you wanna go to a different group, you can, okay? You don't even have to tell them, you, you know, you're weird, okay? You can just go and try things out. People do it all the time, totally normal. No one will be offended, okay? In fact, there are some people in my group, I am hoping try new groups this year. <laughs> I'm kidding, Todd. I'm kidding. Okay, man. Totally cool. You can stay. Um, wherever you're at, don't go it alone, okay? Get into community. Uh, if you're not in a group, go check one out. Make this the year you are devoted to community. Look again at verse 42 towards the end. It says, they devoted themselves to prayer. How do you access the power of the Holy Spirit? You devote yourself to prayer. So often, we underestimate prayer. We read passages like this one and we think, well, why isn't my life more supernatural? Why, why am I not more connected or more generous? Why is my life not more attractive to outsiders? And maybe it's because we're rarely praying for those things to happen in our lives. A lot of times we do this because we're not really convinced that prayer does all that much. In the second century, there was a, a pastor in North Africa. There was a great theologian in the early church, a guy named Tertullian, and he wrote an essay about prayer for his people. And part of it addresses the concern that prayer really, it doesn't do all that much, does it? And so this is what Tertullian said. He said, prayer's only art is, and that's just a phrase that means the only thing prayer is good for is to call back the souls of the dead from the very journey into death, to give strength to the weak, to heal the sick, to exercise the possessed, to open prison cells, to free the innocent from their chains. Prayer cleanses from sin, drives away temptations, stamps out persecutions, comforts the faint-hearted, gives new strength to the courageous, brings travelers safely home, calms the waves, confounds robbers, feeds the poor, overrules the rich, lifts up the fallen, supports those who are failing, and sustains those who stand firm. That's all prayer is really good for, huh? Prayer puts us in touch with the very power of God. 
It's not just saying, hey, could I have a little help here, a little help there? It is saying, God, I want you to send the Holy Spirit to unleash your power at work in our lives to do amazing things. Maybe the reason we don't see more prayers answered is because we don't have more prayers offered. If you want to experience a supernatural life, you've got to start asking God to act. Now, you might hear that and say, okay, really, Clayton? Are you just saying if I, you know, if I start praying, I'm going to see miracles? Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying you shouldn't expect to see miracles if you aren't praying. Now, I'm not sure if you're going to see a miracle, but I do know this. The people whose lives, they, they, they say, hey, I saw a miracle here. I saw God work there. I, I saw this amazing thing happen. Those same people that I know are, are the same people who I would say they are devoted to prayer. Those things go together. They're correlated. You don't get one without the other. If you want to see the supernatural happen, you've got to be devoted to prayer. That's the reason, as a church, we try to be as devoted to prayer as we can be. Uh, we, one of the ways we do this is three times a year we set aside what we call a week of prayer. Uh, we do a concerted effort to pray for the needs of our church. And today kicks off our, our first week of prayer for 2018. Uh, we mix up the ways we do this. Sometimes we'll have a, a big gathering for prayer uh, on each of our campuses. Sometimes we'll have a, a big worship concert. And sometimes we'll do what we're doing this week, where we ask each community group to set aside the majority of their time together to pray for the needs of the church and to pray for each other. And so that's what we're doing. Uh, if you're a community group leader, I, I want to encourage you. Uh, if you haven't figured out what you're doing this week for your group, this is what we're asking you to do. Uh, grab one of the prayer guides and, uh, and use that to lead your group. That's what I'm going to be doing this afternoon with my group. Uh, and so uh, we want to get people into praying. And even if uh, you're uh, not in a community group or if you're uh, you know, thinking, well, what do I do the rest of the week? What we want you to do is go find that prayer guide. Uh, you can find it on the mobile app. You can find it on the website. You can get it sent to you in email. There are uh, some physical copies at some of our campuses. Uh, you can pick those up and you can use it all throughout the week with, uh, on your own or with your family as you pray for the church. And here's our hope, is that you would do that diligently this week, but then you would make the rest of the year, you would just keep going and you would say, we're gonna make this the year that I'm devoted to prayer. And I do want to highlight that word devoted here, because I think, I think it's really important in the passage. Uh, some of you might have been thinking throughout this entire sermon, okay, look, man, I, I hear what you're saying, and th this is what you told me to do. Get in a group, pray, read my Bible. Like, that's the same thing you guys say every week, right? <laughs> it's true, okay? Like, we think they really matter. That's why we say them every week. But here's the thing. You, you might be saying, okay, I've tried those things, guys. Like, I, I've done it, and I don't see Acts 2 happening in my life. Okay, so here, here's the place I want to challenge you. Would you say that you are devoted to those things? Or would you say you're just sort of dabbling in those things? Because I'll be honest. I, if, if I'm honest, more often than I'd like to admit, I'm not devoted to these things. I'm just, I'm just doing uh, the bare minimum on these things. But here's the thing. Everybody is devoted to something. It might be your health, it might be your career, your kids, your political cause, your sports team. You're, you're devoted to something. And here's how you know what you're devoted to. It is a thing in your life that can bump other things. It's a thing that can edge out other stuff that you've got going on. Uh, so when my alarm goes off in the morning, I, I've got a choice to make. I can get up and work out. I can get up and do some emailing before I go into the office. I can get up and uh, do Bible savvy. I can get up, or I can actually not get up and just sleep for another 30 minutes. And what I do in that moment tells me, honestly, what I'm devoted to at that moment. Or, or 30 minutes before bed, I can either watch another TV show or I can go upstairs and I can pray with my wife before we go to bed. Which one I actually do tells me what I'm devoted to at that moment. 
The thing you are most devoted to in your life is the thing that it is hardest for other things to bump. So what's the activity you never miss? What's the thing that always happens in your life? What's the thing that if you are forced to not do it, you are thinking, I wish I was doing that right now. You're worried that you're not doing it. When it comes to the things in these passages, ask yourself honestly, by looking at your behavior, are you devoted or are you dabbling? I don't know about you, but I want to be someone who is devoted this year. Imagine what it would be like if all of us were. There's one more thing in this verse that the early church was devoted to. It says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, that is more, that's a, a phrase that means more than just eating bread together. It's not just any old meal. It refers to a very specific meal. It's the meal that we're about to celebrate together as a community. It's the meal of communion. Now, it might seem funny, but I actually think that being devoted to this one, to gathering regularly with God's people, to worship God, to hear from his word, and to celebrate communion together, that this is the one that is a, a linchpin that's going to help you be more devoted to all the rest of them. Because here's what communion is. Communion is a symbol and a celebration of Jesus' devotion to us. Here, here's what we see in communion. We see the one that the apostles taught about. Jesus, whose body and blood we have symbolized here, is the focus of all of Scripture. And when we see him more in communion, we're going to seek him more in the Word. What we see here is the one who invited us into community. We see that Jesus was so invested in us that he didn't just give his money or his possessions for us. He gave his very life to meet our needs. Here we see the one who is actually devoted to us in prayer. You know what Jesus is doing right now? He is standing before the Father. He is speaking about you and your needs. He is lifting you up in prayer right now. That communion symbolizes all of these things, but in some ways it's more than a symbol. In a mysterious way, we experience the presence of Jesus as we eat and we drink together. Jesus is literally welcoming us to share a meal with him, to gather at his table and to break bread with him, and to do that with glad and sincere hearts. So as we prepare to do that, let's pray together. God, we, we want this year to be a year that we experience your power. We, we desire that so much, God. We want a, a supernatural life, a connected life, a, a life that is a, a, a generous, a life that is attractive to outsiders. That's what we desire. And so we pray that your, your power would be at work in us, in our community, and we pray that you would make us devoted to these things that you've given to us, that we would be people who are in your word, that we would be people who are uh, connected in community and invested in other people, that we would be people of prayer, and even now, as we worship you, as we celebrate communion together, make us people who are devoted to gathering as a body. And we pray that you would do all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.